1 John 3, 11 through 20. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed, past tense, we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but let us love with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. This is God's word. Um, I did a, a wedding yesterday, and we'll, we'll pray for that wedding uh, a little bit later. But I did a wedding yesterday, and last week I actually had uh, somebody come up to me after the service. And uh, Abby and Dan, I don't know if Abby and Dan are here tonight, but it's one of the, the first weddings that I did here at St. Marcus. And Abby was asking for a copy of the sermon message from a couple years ago, and I, I sent her a copy. But weddings have been on the brain. And one of the benefits of weddings to me, for me, spiritually speaking, is it forces me to wrestle with what the biblical conception of love really is. The biblical conception versus what the Bible, excuse me, what the world generally says about what love truly is. And I was reading back through my sermon there for Dan and Abby, and the route that I went at that time is I just said, if you are going to look at the world the most popular songs in the world, the most popular movies in the world on love, what would you gather about what the world says about love? So, for instance, Rolling Stone has said in the past 50 years, the number one word that's used in top songs is the word love. It's not uh or the, it's not you or me. The top word is love. Over 80% of the songs that have been recorded in mainstream uh, radio have been about love. So, if that's the case... From the past five to ten years of studying love through popular music, you would be sitting at the feet of poets and bards like Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran and John Legend and uh, Bruno Mars and something called a Wiz Khalifa and, uh, and of course, the Biebs. Good luck. Good luck. If that's going to be your ultimate definition of what love is, I think it, most people would say maybe that falls a little bit short. If you were to look at the top blockbuster movies that had a theme of love attached to them, so uh, romantic-themed movies from the past 10 years, interestingly enough, you'd be really hard-pressed to find a movie that was about a man and a woman who, in a monogamous relationship, ended up getting married. You almost don't see that. Interestingly enough, you see all sorts of other interesting things. You see uh, somebody falling in love with a, a werewolf or a vampire. You see somebody falling in love with a mutant, somebody falling in love with an alien, uh, somebody falling in love with a zombie. But that crazy, like, male, female, monogamous, till death do us part stuff, that 
Our movies are almost devoid of that anymore. And that just tells you kind of where we're at today when it comes to love. Furthermore, part of the problem is that we tend to define love simply in romanticized terms uh, in, in the first place. Hyper-romanticized. Now, romanticism and modern romance are two different things. Romanticism is the movement in Europe in the 1800s that had the double focus, double emphasis, an emphasis on the individual and an emphasis on the emotions. Okay? Now, the problem, however, is that we tend to define modern romantic love in terms of romanticism. We tend to define all sorts of love simply on the basis of the individual and our personal emotions. Now, what that means is we have a lot of trouble showing expressions of love and acts of kindness to people that we don't actually feel all that strongly about. I would suggest to you this is one of the reasons why we're struggling with long-term relationships in our society. This is one of the reasons why you have people on either sides of a political issue, which, okay, you have different ideas of an issue, but just the idea of being charitable towards somebody that you don't feel affectionately towards is very, very difficult for modern people. Uh, because we think, romantically speaking, if we don't have strong emotions towards them, it's nearly impossible to show acts of love and charity and kindness to them. That's a problem. And it's not just me saying that's a problem. That's not just the Bible saying that's a problem. That's world leaders today are saying that's a problem. In fact, a guy who he kind of wrote the book on love. He's not a Christian. He's a Swiss, technically like Swiss-British philosopher, documentary filmmaker, and author. Uh, but he wrote, he's written, he sold seven million copies of a book called Essays in Love from the early 90s. And he's written a bunch of other uh, books and made a bunch of speeches on love around the world since then. A couple years ago, I saved an article of an interview with him from Huffington Post. His name's Alan DeBotton. He said something really interesting. Here's what he said. He said, being fully yourself is a treat that you should spare pretty much anybody that you really care about. In other words, don't show people your true self. Whatever you feel, whatever your emotions are, please, if you care about anybody at all, don't give those things to somebody. Restrain them. We have this painful tendency, he's saying, to only show love when we feel emotions of love. And that's problematic for long-term relationships. He says, as an ideology, romanticism is a catastrophe for long-term relationships. We need to be disloyal to these romantic notions. You know what? By and large, the Bible agrees. The Bible does not define love nearly as much in terms of personal feelings and emotions as it does in volitional commitment and sacrifice. And so my challenge to you tonight is this. How are you personally defining and enacting love in your life? Are you doing it by the world's definition or are you doing it by the Bible's definition? Uh, in other words, let me put this a little bit differently. If on the basis of the Bible's definition of love, personal commitment, uh, volitional sacrifice, if somebody just did an inventory of your life, what would it seem to suggest on the basis of those two points? What are the things that you really functionally love in life? And what would it take for us to get to the point where God is our highest love as we are his highest love? I'm going to break the teaching tonight into these three points. We're going to see from our lesson in 1 John 3 that love is not less than motive. In other words, if you just go through the motions and just go through the actions, but it's disingenuous and it's inauthentic and it's insincere, that's not really love, according to the Bible. Furthermore, love is not 
less than motion. If you have strong feelings and uh, you say the right things, but you don't actually act out the love, the Bible says that's also not really love. Finally, we'll find that love, as the Bible defines it, is simply greater than our hearts. And I'll tell you what that means. Okay? Love is not less than motive. Love is not less than motion. And love is greater than our hearts. First of all, love is not less than motive. Let me reread for you a portion from the beginning of our lesson. Verses 12 and 15, John is taking us back to the story of a guy named Cain. Cain and Abel. He says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? You have to go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4. And Cain and Abel, they're not only the first uh, siblings, it's the first story of murder in the Bible. And interestingly enough, Cain sometimes gets... uh, unfortunately categorized in the wrong light. Cain is not, he's not at all an atheist. He's a worshiper of God. Remember, these two guys, these brothers are religious guys. They are worshipers. They both bring offerings to God. The problem, however, is what's ever going on inside of them because the motions are right, but the motive is off. Um, Cain is the embodiment of what happens if your emotions go unchecked and just go to kind of this trajectory of self-centeredness. Cain's emotions, over the course of the story of of Cain and Abel, they go from what? Uh, A little bit of disingenuousness to frustration, to envy of his brother, to resentment of his brother, to hatred, to murder. What happened? He was insincere. His heart really wasn't into it. God wasn't his greatest goal. Cain was Cain's greatest goal. Um, And we don't know exactly what is going on in his heart. We don't exactly know how God verifies that Abel's offering is acceptable and Cain's isn't. Some theologians will say that God sent down fire and consumed Abel's offering, but Cain's offering he just left uh, as is, and Cain gets all bitter and unruly about this. It teaches us something very important, though. Uh, Religious practitioners... Uh, don't, by definition of their practice, uh, they aren't necessarily loving people. Just going through the motions of religion doesn't make you loving. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I, as a, as a pastor, so like, a sh- at least in definition, a shepherd of a flock, what am I looking for to see if somebody's spiritually healthy? It's not less than spiritual practices. I do look for things like uh, worship and study and, and service and, and uh, those kinds of things, prayer in their lives. I do look for things like a creedal confession like we did earlier, but I don't limit to that. If somebody does all those things but has no joy in their life and is demonstrating no grace to anybody else in their life and has no compassion or charity but they struggle with uh, condescension and arrogance and self-righteousness, they're not demonstrating true love. And that is a beast that will take you down. Even though from the world's perspective you look like a pillar of society and your life is squeaky clean, moralistically speaking, God comes to Cain and he says, you know that hatred that's festering in your heart? That thing is a beast. It is like a tiger that is ready to pounce and take you down. And you better get control of that, Cain. Uh, you, you submit to God's will, but your emotions are out of control. Some of you have a lot of regret from a lot of drama that's happened in your lives because of emotions that have run amok and run unchecked. 
And what God is asking you to do is don't just go through the motions, but actually repent to God of what's on the inside and say, God, create in me a new heart so that I don't just go through the counterfeit of the right things to do, but that it's sincere and coming from the inside out. Some of us struggle with this. Others of us struggle with the opposite end of the spectrum. Some of us struggle with going through the motions and doing the right things, but we still struggle with judgmentalism and condescension and self-righteousness. Others of us are very good-hearted, very well-intentioned. We also say all the right things, but our follow-through in life is significantly lacking. And the love that we say that we have for others is not necessarily seen in the cost, in the personal cost to ourselves. Look at what John says here. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's sacrifice. It's concrete cost. It's very interesting. I would challenge you to go into your Gospels this week and find me a time where Jesus just says to somebody very directly, I love you. Find it and report back to me and tell me when he says it. Jesus' rhetoric is almost completely devoid of sentimentality. You'd expect him every once in a while to say, I just love you guys so much. Maybe even use some of the rhetoric of today. I'll be there till the stars don't shine, till the heavens burst and the words don't rhyme. You know when I die, you'll be on my mind and I'll love you always. Bon Jovi. And for those of you, <laughs> some of you are far too young for that. Or to, uh, so, let me put it in your terms. But baby now, take me into your loving arms. Kiss me under the light of a thousand stars. Or, so you can keep me inside the pocket of your ripped jeans, holding me closer till our eyes meet, you won't ever be alone. You know Ed Sheeran, right? Um, Jesus never says anything like that. In fact, he almost comically doesn't say stuff like that. It almost seems rude at times. You know what it, notice what he says to Mary Magdalene on Easter Sunday after he's resurrected from the grave. She find out, uh, finds out that the tomb is empty. He, she runs up to him. She grabs hold of him. And you remember what he says? Woman, get off of me. I have to go to my father. Let go of me. I have to get going. Is he being rude? Does Jesus not love Mary Magdalene? And for that matter, does Jesus not love you and me? Well, of course he does. How do you know? It's not so much because he articulated it, although he does carefully articulate it. It's because he showed it. He laid down his life for us. Rest assured, if somebody goes through hell and back in order to be in relationship with you, they love you. If somebody is willing to pay for all of the costs, for all of the crimes and all of the mistakes and sins that you have ever made, undeniably, that person loves you. That's exactly what Jesus does. And interestingly enough, John says that actually is how you're supposed to go about loving other people. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on that person, how can the love of God be in them? Dear children, let us not, this is hyperbole, but it's, you get the point. Don't love with words. Now, he's not saying don't ever say I love you. But he does say don't love with words and speech. Love with actions and in truth. Uh, and in Greek, what he actually says here when he's talking about material possessions, he says anything that somebody actually needs for their lives. He says, if you got the stuff that you need to keep you alive, the food and clothes and shelter, and you know that specifically a brother or sister, 
ultimately anybody, but especially a brother and sister in Christ, and they have those needs and you don't share what you've got with that person, how do you, how do you know for sure that you have the love of Christ inside of you? This brings up a ton of practical examples. Um, I get questions about this all the time, like how much charity should you give to those who are in need? And I'm thankful, honestly, every day when I come down uh, to St. Marcus, a uh, so, so couple times a day, when I come 43 on to North Avenue, I have at least one person, sometimes multiple people, asking me for something. And they seem, so far as I can tell, like they have some needs. Uh, I'm not going to tell you exactly what you should do in every circumstance because I don't know what the right thing in every circumstance is. There could be problems on either side. What I would encourage you to do, what the Bible encourages us to do, is, is act ahead of reacting. In other words, you intentionally, in a disciplined lo- a way, love other people. But don't simply, see, reaction is romanticism. Reaction is just hyper-emotions. And it can drive you to behaviors, but they're not always the most constructive behaviors. If you're always just reacting out of guilt or reacting out of shame or reacting out of sadness or reacting out of pride, that sometimes gets a little bit unhealthy. You always should act, but don't simply react. Nonetheless, the bottom line here is what what John is saying. If you actually love other people, it must cost you something. If you love somebody else, you have to be sacrificing something to be in relationship with that person. Uh, Your schedule has to look different. Your finances probably have to look different. Your life plans and aspirations probably have to look different. If you have the love of Jesus Christ inside of you, that's the proof that you have for yourself. Now, I said this last week. I want to be careful not to give you specific examples of what you should do because very quickly I could fall into what's called legalism. Those are uh, when a Christian says, oh yeah, to be a really good Christian, you should do X, Y, and Z, even though it doesn't actually say that in the Bible. You should be wrestling with this on your own. You should be praying about this on your own and asking God to guide you on your own. What I would like to do, however, is give you a couple examples of people that I think are doing sacrificial love really well. I'm going to give you an example from the early church, an example from the modern church, an example of a kid, a kid who really gets it, okay? Example from the early church. Uh, about every year, I quote from this one document, one of the most, uh, one of the first extant biblical literature documents that we have about the Christian church is called the Epistle to Diognetus. The law name is Epistle to Diagnos from Methetus. But it's two non-Christians talking about their perceptions of the early Christian church. And I want you to see how incredible it is. And ask, is this the way people talk about Christians today? Look, look what the, the Epistle to Diagnetus says here. Talking about the Christians, he says, they have a common table but not a common bed. That's a, an incredible statement. And I want you to understand what he's saying. See, the Romans... They were very generous and liberal with their sexuality. They were very stingy with their money and their stuff and their food. Okay? Uh, So the Christians were almost the exact opposite. The Christians were very stingy with their their sexuality. They wouldn't share their beds with anybody except their, their marriage spouse. But they were very frivolous, very liberal with all their stuff. Because they actually believed that they had a paradise coming to them in heaven. 
And all of their needs were going to be met by that sovereign God. And so they were courageous and free to give away some of the blessings that they had in this life. And the Romans said, how on earth do we deal with this? How do we suppress this movement? They're winning over the hearts of all the people because they have a common table but not a common bed. They are in the flesh but they do not live after the flesh. The Christians pass their days on earth but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time they surpass the laws. They keep all of God's laws but they don't just do it to try to keep the laws. They do it because they love people. They surpass the laws by their lives. They love all people and yet they get persecuted by all. And sometimes people ask the question, how does Christianity with no educational, no financial, and no political resources get off the ground in the Roman Empire with so much opposition? Because the beauty of their lives led people to investigate Christianity. And when they heard the message of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit changed their hearts. Is this the same kind of stuff that people say about the church today? Let me give you a more modern example. Um, I, I remember the story of a woman who went to a woman's group in a church and uh, it was a young mother. I think she had maybe three kids under four years old. And she was, she was exhausted. She's constantly running around. She's a stay-at-home mom, but she's constantly attending to these kids. And uh, somebody, they were talking about, the women were talking about their devotional lives. And somebody asked her about, about hers and how, you know, what kind of devotional stuff she likes to do. And she said, well, I'm not able to do any of that. I'm too, like I got too much going on. I'm too busy. I'm too exhausted. I can't do it. So nobody judged or said anything about that. A couple of days later that week, though, a couple of older women from the congregation, some retired women, showed up at her door unannounced, and they came in, they knocked on the door, they said, we're taking over. Go in your room and do an hour's worth of devotions or so. Well, we got your kids. And so they, they don't even, like, they invite themselves in. And she's like, well, he needs to be changed at this, and he needs to be fed. And they said, we've raised kids our whole lives. We know what we're doing. Just go do your devotions. Okay. We can handle, we've, we've handled all these kids all our lives. You can handle three kids. She goes and does her devotions. They do that for three days in a row. Without her asking, they just do it. Uh, after the third day, she says, uh, you guys probably don't need to do this for me anymore. I realized something. I was saying that I couldn't do my devotions in life. What I really meant was I couldn't do it without some kind of shifting and some kind of difficulty and some kind of challenge. Uh, but I can do it, and thank you for helping show me that through your sacrifice of time and energy. They loved by giving up a portion of themselves to help somebody else. It was action. Let me give you one more. The example uh, of a kid who gets it. Uh, I remember an article in a Christian magazine that I read. It was about a decade ago, and I saved it. It was a story of a little boy, a nine-year-old in third grade named Mark. And uh, the story was that his mom got contacted uh, by his teacher that day. And the first, you know, parent get a phone call about a kid and you immediately start to think, uh-oh, what did he do? It's at the beginning of the school year. Um, she said, no, don't worry about it. If, if, if you just have a couple minutes when you come to pick up Mark today, I just want to share a story with you because it's, it's, it's really cool. And the teacher had done the same exercise every year. She, at the beginning of the year, uh, as a writing exercise, she would, she would tell the kids a start of a story and she would have them always end the story and then draw a little picture of it. And that was their assignment, their writing assignment each week. Kind of a cool assignment. And at the beginning of the year, the first writing example like this was a story of Mr. Ant and Mr. Grasshopper. And Mr. Ant and Gr Mr. Grasshopper were coming off of summer break. And Mr. Ant, all summer, had worked very diligently 
and he had stored up food for the winter and he had planned and he had saved and he had worked and he didn't squander away his time and he was ready for the winter. Mr. Grasshopper, not so much. He loved the long days. He went out and played uh, and he soaked up every moment. There was always food available outside, so he was always well fed during the summer. Fall came, things got a little bit more difficult. Winter came, Mr. Grasshopper had no food stored. Mr. Ant was uh, well provided for. Mr. Grasshopper comes to Mr. Ant and asks for help. That's where the story ends. Kids, finish the story. Now, the teacher who had taught for about 20 years said that the vast majority of responses that she had gotten to that story always came basically in one of two major categories that both taught a slightly different moral. Uh, Many of the kids uh, would say, okay, Mr. Ant, when asked for food from Mr. Grasshopper, would say, you should have worked harder. You squandered away all your time, and now you're, you're paying for this, and Mr. Grasshopper dies. And the moral of the story... The moral of the story for those kids is work hard, plan hard. Life is not easy and you have to put your time and energy into it and you will get out of it what you put in. Uh, It's not a bad moral. The Bible does say stuff like he who does not work should not be fed, right? That we should be diligent with our time and our energy. Uh, Part of the kids went in that category. Another group of the kids, another kind of majority of the kids, would say, okay, Mr. Ant has been well provided for. He stored up a lot of food, and uh, Mr. Grasshopper doesn't have anything. And people who have needs and legitimate needs, regardless of the circumstances, we are to look after them and care for them and help provide for those needs. Uh, In other words, the moral of that story that those kids end is that we should share. If you have been blessed with something, you should share with others who don't have as much. And they finish the story that way. The teacher calls in Mark's mom and says, Mark finished the story in a way that I've never heard finished in the 20 years that I've been doing this exercise. You know how Mark finished the story? Uh, Some of you maybe seen the magazine article before. Uh, Mark says that the ant gives all of his food to the grasshopper and the ant dies. And the picture that he draws at the bottom of the page is three crosses on a hill. Now, in the dialogue for Mark's story, the ant never said anything about loving the grasshopper. But everybody who read the story knew how much the ant actually loved the grasshopper. What did our writer say? Let us not love in words and speech. Let us love in actions and in truth. Some of us are being moved to act exactly that way and realize that the follow-through we need from the Spirit to bring into our lives, that our lives of love need to become more than just words of love. That brings me to the final point. Love is greater than our hearts. None of this acting earns our status as God's children. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. Uh, You are already God's child by grace. Any appeal to express Christian love to other people is not to earn your favor before God. It's out of the status that you already have unmistakably and unalterably. You are God's child. Nothing can take that away from you. All the, the Bible does is says, just live out of that truth. Live out of that status. And yet, my guess is some of you feel kind of like I do as we read through the first two paragraphs. As I reflect back on my life, I know there have been times where uh, probably maybe earlier on in my life, I was really good at keeping the rules. 
I was really good at keeping all of the commands of the authorities. I did all the right stuff, and I said a lot of the right stuff too, but on the inside, there was a certain level of malice and condescension and anger and self-righteousness towards other people who didn't do those same things. That love was not fully love. At various other points in my life, some of you might be able to relate to me here, I had better intentions. I had more compassion. I had more open-mindedness. I had more um, all sorts of things like that. And I probably said the right things there too, but very often my love was lacking in action. And it was lacking in follow-through. And the things and the people that I said I loved, it wasn't actually costing me anything. And the Bible says that's not really love either, James. So what what do I do with that guilt? Well, I looked at the final verse of our lesson. John says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Your status as God's redeemed and loved and accepted child cannot change. It won't change because Jesus is so much bigger than all of your mistakes and he's so much bigger than all of your failures. Your father's love can't go anywhere for you. You didn't do anything to earn your adoption into God's family in any mistakes that you make along the way, including the lack of love that we've at times shown. Uh, You can't make yourself unadopted. You're eternally part of the family, those of us who trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But something very interesting happens when you understand that grace. You can't forfeit that status. And this is where the adoption analogy really ends and breaks down. Because in 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 an adoption, you don't actually get the new parents' genetics inside of you. You don't get their DNA inside of you. In, In the Bible, you do. The Bible doesn't call it DNA. The Bible calls it the spirit of Jesus Christ. See, that same spirit of Jesus that eternally makes us forgiven, redeemed, accepted children of God, the Bible says Jesus sends his spirit inside of you and he says that should move the way you love moving forward. Uh, I just saw an article in Psychology Today that said the way we talk about how we love people has drastically changed over the last 20 years. 20 plus years ago, and it was common vernacular for people to say, particularly in romantic relationships, I love you. People are not saying that nearly as much anymore. Uh, The author, the lady who wrote the article said, you can see it. Uh, They've categorized it in television and movies and songs and and just in day-to-day conversation. She said, I love you has changed into two different expressions. It's turned into, "I'm, I'm falling in love with you. And even less committal than that is, I think I'm falling in love with you. Uh, And if you progress in that relationship and it gets really serious and it goes really well, at some point in time, you might actually say to that person, I am in love with you. You say, big deal. What's the difference between saying I love you and I am in love with you? It's a huge difference. Being in love with somebody is a non-committal state. It's a non-permanent state. It doesn't reflect confidence or control. It's an emotion that costs us nothing and can be easily fallen out of. Thank God Jesus isn't merely in love with you. Thank God he actually loves you. And he always has, and he always will, and nothing can change that. And now he's moving you and I to love the exact same kind of way. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, tonight uh, what we want to do is humbly confess our imperfect love. Uh, You have been so good to us. 
Not only did you uh, show us already in the past at the cross the ultimate example of love, going through hell and back in order to be with us. You've shown the depth of your love for us. But even now when we struggle, your love is unwavering and unconditional. Please let us receive that into our hearts. Please pour your spirit more into us. Please let that truth become even more alive so that it affects the way we express our love to others. Let it not be merely with our words. Let it be at cost and sacrifice and may it glorify you. It's in your name we pray.